and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, is the warning. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is, to, what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice at the end that he says that love is the fulfillment of the law. And I wonder what law Paul was thinking about when he said law. I don't think he meant Roman law. I don't think he meant Babylonian law. He meant God's law. That it would be the case that any civil institution is actually subjugated to God's law, whether they would like to be or not. Whether they have it on their code book or not. For God is the Lord. And he has given two swords in this world. One sword has been given to the church as we have said, it is a spiritual sword. It is a sword for cutting the heart. It is a sword for cutting the mind. It is a sharp sword. It can divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It can expose the inner thoughts and intentions of your heart. And that sword is the only sword that really saves. That sword is the only sword that actually transforms the world. The other sword here we read is a sword given to the state, the civil magistrate. And this sword is for cutting, but it is a steel sword. It is a metal sword. It is sharp, and it serves a purpose, but it cannot do what the Spirit can. It does something quite different. Now when you read this, you might think, Paul, were you born yesterday? If you read through it slowly, maybe one more time, you, you notice how he described the state, how he described civil government. I mean, for a ruler, rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but for bad. Well, yes, that would be wonderful. But 
I have read a book before. I mean, I've lived in the world for more than a few years. But he says it like that. Rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but for bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Well, well, simple as this. Just do good stuff. Do good. And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he doesn't bear the sword in vain. So if you are just good, apparently everything will go well. And then you read that and you pause and you might want to just set the scriptures down for a minute and then scratch your head and say, I feel like I'm missing something. Because that doesn't seem to always be true. But it only makes sense when we realize that there is one Lord. That Paul is operating on the granted assumption, the happy assumption, the only real assumption that makes sense of any claim to power or authority is the assumption that Jesus is king. He is the alpha. He is the omega. And if he is king, then therefore the government would function this way on these parameters, on these value judgments. If you remove the fact that there is one Lord who is over both these swords, the church and the state, this chapter makes no sense at all in actual real world living. Because there are an embarrassment of riches with evidence to the contrary of what we just read throughout all of human history. See, it has to be balanced with the reality of knowing that this absolute sovereignty of Jesus is what delegates sovereignty to other sovereigns, other governments or states. He says there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is the starting point. Anyone who ever claims to have authority, whether they claim to have authority and really don't have it, or they really have authority because they have all the power and all the swords and the guns, that is only because God has permitted them to have that. There is no authority at all that does not come from God. Whether they acknowledge him or not, that authority is actually his. Daniel 4 Paul is, all Paul is saying here is everything that the Old Testament has taught him as a Jewish man. Daniel 4, the Most High, is sovereign over the kingdoms of mortals. He gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of human beings. The Most High, he is the one over every one of these kingdoms. And this word comes to Nebuchadnezzar who has control over all domains. And he is going crazy because he thinks the, the thing that set him crazy in the story of Daniel is he, in, he, he entertained this absolutely wild thought that that kingdom was his. I have made this kingdom. He said that to himself and he went mad. Because the whole point was to say this was given to you. All domains all powers, all authorities are 
from God. And of course, Jesus, the incarnate king himself, before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate threatens him, do you not know I have the power of life over you? You should take this trial seriously. You should begin to start answering my questions. And then Jesus responds, you would have no authority. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you. It is not your authority, Pontius Pilate. And I will answer your questions whenever I please. For I am king. But you only have this post, this position, this ordination because of God. For there is only one Lord. Now that sounds so simple. We would all say yes. But then when you pause, the beauty of a sermon series like that, to pause for a second and be like, but really we don't think this way. When it comes to anything outside of a personal Bible study. Or maybe the way we should think about the church. Of course Jesus is over the church because the church is the church. And then we say there's this thing called the secular world. That idea of making that shift, this thing called the secular world, is not biblical. There is no secular divide, absolutely, in all of Scripture. That comes from the Enlightenment, the 1600s, and that is it. There is nothing there in Scripture. There's nothing there in Daniel, and there's certainly nothing here in Romans 13 to ever give anyone these inflated ideas that there is a realm in which God's finger could not land. And the state is very much under all five of them. He can do whatever he wants with any of them. The problem of perusing this passage is that many uh, interpret uh, this as an absolute command, therefore, that we should submit to everything or obey in everything uh, that the government has for us. Because it does sound that way, and it is uh, said that way in a lot of uh, verses. Submit every time. The famous one, of course, would be everyone... Uh, references, if you're a Christian thinking through these things, you go immediately to Acts uh, 5, where Peter and the apostles said to the Sanhedrin, you judge for yourself whether it would rather be good for us to obey you or to obey God. For us, we will obey God and continue to preach the gospel. And that's about the extent of where anyone um, generally in the evangelical church, I say, would um, stop thinking about these things. So unless the state, therefore, from Acts 5, tells me to not preach about Jesus, or do not talk about Jesus, then I will disobey them. And that's safe, that's good. But if that's the extent of it, the government just telling you, now don't talk about Jesus, don't talk about Jesus, then I get to disobey. The problem is, the world's much more complicated than that. History is much more complicated than that. And no Christian anywhere in the first few centuries of the church was ever persecuted for just not talking about Jesus. They were persecuted because they were saying very distinct things about Jesus that were true and had everything to do with the state. So, Ian Shapiro is a a professor of political science at Yale, and he uses this example. I think it's great for us this morning to think of. Now, everyone has heard of a man named Adolf Hitler. When we're going to go to these ethical dilemmas, we've got to go there. But I don't want to do the normal thing. Everyone says, if you disagree with anybody, you have to uh, digress them down to being something of like a Nazi, and then you prove your point. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to just say, and here is Adolf Hitler in history, and that was bad, and we shouldn't do that. 
I'd like to talk about another Adolf, a less known Adolf. Uh, this is a different Adolf at the same time of the Nazi party, Adolf Eichmann. You might have heard of Adolf Eichmann if you are a World War II a history buff, uh, but if you're not, you probably haven't. But there were more than uh, one or two Adolfs in the World War II. Adolf Eichmann was an oil salesman uh, before uh, the Nazi party came to power. And uh, at the time, everyone was having economical uh, problems, uh, and that's what gave the Nazis so much power. The uh, National Socialist German Workers uh, Party, the Nazi party, uh, Eichmann joined that party, and his life was never the same from that point. Uh, he was um, not the most... Um, uh, charismatic or dynamic of the leaders or most intelligent or gifted, he was a yes man. He was seeing this party as an opportunity to uh, extend his rank. If he could just make his superiors happy, he would move up in uh, the Nazi party and his life would go better. And so what was given uh, to Adolf Eichmann was the appointment of dealing with the emigration in Germany. That was his job. Now, at the beginning stages of the Nazi movement, and then the first few years, even of the war itself, starting in 1939, Eichmann's job was nothing more than to make the trains run on time. The trains that were to deal with Jewish people. And those trains were set for the purpose of doing nothing less than transporting them gently, and might we say kindly, to ghettos, to just be out of the general population. And that was done uh, through economical dissentives um, and even some violence. But the point, his initial job was only to move them to these ghettos so that they could be again later transported uh, even in a more extensive way overseas. They had plans. He was working on plans to send all of these Jews to Madagascar and other places on the other side of Europe. The problem set in place, however, in 1941 when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union. And all of their resources and assets had to be uh, moved toward that theater of war. And things began to become more tense for Eichmann. He had to now, as he was told by his superiors, by his government to take the deportation policy and translate that into an extermination policy. And as they say, the rest is history. And six million Jews have died. Eichmann sent so many trains to Auschwitz. He, by his railroads, participated in the shedding of blood of over 400,000 Jews just in Hungary alone. And so the war ends in 1945 and the USA forces of America, they capture Eichmann. And they let him go. He had an alias of being called Otto Eckman. And they didn't know who he had. They didn't know he was the man behind the whole deportation. And so he actually, uh, Adolf Eichmann, escaped the Nuremberg trials. He was never brought under trial for any of this. 
He moved around Europe for a few years and then made a false passport and translated himself to Argentina, where he lived in Buenos Aires for a few years. He would have been there and got away with everything, except for a few unlawful things happened next. The Israeli Special Forces, Mossad, went to Argentina illegally. They did not get permit from the government of Argentina because they were fearful that they wouldn't have had permission. They snuck in to his bedroom and kidnapped him, drugged him, and then eventually transported him back to Europe where he underwent trial. And everything the Jewish military did was technically illegal. They had no rights to any of that by any civil authority. And so what follows next is a point I would love to read. We actually have Eichmann's words justifying himself. And I would like us all to let these words lay heavily upon us as we consider truly what is our relationship to the government that God has instituted. They asked him many things in the trial. And one of the words that kept coming up in this trial, he kept saying this word in German, Führerprinzip. And Helga, if you could help me, I know I butchered that, I'm sorry. Or Gerda, please, forgive me. Um, Führerprinzip. It means the Führer's word is above law. He maintained in his trial nothing more than I was lawfully acting in every single thing I did. Within our government system, I was 100% legal, 100% justified in everything. For even within our government system, we worked out not only with eugenics and a few other wonderful ideas, that the Fuhrer's words were law. They never heard a sermon series called Two Swords and One Lord. There was just one Lord and one sword. And whatever that Lord, the Fuhrer, would say was therefore law. That miscalculation, which you would say, why go into the details of all this? Oh, I don't know. Millions of people dying, maybe? And a world war? Thoughts are much more dangerous than guns. Much more dangerous. And so he would say this word, Führerprinzip, Führerprinzip, all the time to justify himself. After hearing the charges, 15 or so, laid against him, they asked him to explain himself. And his word is, a quote, I uh, tried to leave my post to go fight in the war, but they wanted me to run the trains. I am guilty of having been obedient, having subordinated myself to my official duties and to my obligations. That's what he said. I am only guilty of being obedient. The final words after he was indicted, they offered him an opportunity to say a few more things. He says this, the obedience was not easy. He's a normal person. He went home to his family every day after running the trains, played with them in the yard. He's you, he's me. The obedience was not easy. And again, anyone who has to give orders 
and has to obey orders knows what one can demand of people. I did not persecute Jews with avidity or passion. That is what the government did. The government did that. Nor could the persecution be carried out other than by the government. But I never, I never did this. I accused the leaders of abusing my obedience. He says, I am not a monster. And he twists the blame to say this. And this is where it is interesting for us this morning. He pushes it to say, he was acting lawfully. And the Israeli government, those who actually kidnapped him, technically were acting unlawfully. They did not get papers from Argentina. They came, and he says this, in his own hearing, for his defense, he actually turns the tables. After doing what he did, these are his words. I am not the monster that I made out to be. I am the victim of an error of judgment. I was assaulted in Buenos Aires, tied to the bed for a week, and then drugged by injections in my arms, and brought to the airport of Buenos Aires. From there, I was flown out of Argentina. This can quite obviously only be explained by the fact that I was considered to be a person who is responsible for everything. And then he points it to say, you actually had no right to do that by the government I was in, in Argentina. And here is the problem for us this morning. If there is no other law superior to the law of nations, he is 100% correct. If he was residing in Argentina and the Argentina government did not permit his release, then the actual people who suffered under his brutalization were wrong and he was protected to be right. Because if that is the case, right is only might. And therefore we need to know Romans 13, that there is a Lord who is over it all. And it must be built into especially our minds as Christians to know this. To not know this or to ever forget this is more dangerous than many bombs. And even outside of the Christian church, a culture that does not know this, does not have this in their intellectual furniture, runs the risk of doing this all over again. There is a higher law, a higher Lord. The solution then is therefore to read this once again from Romans 13. The phrase in the first verse is, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And submission here is not obedience. Submission is not obedience. Obedience in the sense of a strict universal compliance to all things. Obedience is terrible. Because the government still is nothing more than a human institution. Yet here, submission to these governing authorities is what we are called to do 
in the first verse. Recognize God's appointed ordering of the world. We must submit to the government. In most cases, submission for Christians will be obedience. We will obey. We will do everything. We will pay our taxes. We will drive on that side of the road. We will cut our grass in, in the zoning areas. We'll make sure to get our mail so it doesn't get all piled up. I'm terrible at that. We will be the best citizens ever. We will submit. But submission is not always obedience. There are many rebellious heroes in Scripture. Rahab many times is commemorated for lying to her government. She lied to take in the spies. They came to her and said, do you have spies? Her government said, do you have spies? Do you think it would be a good thing if you were a good citizen of a good nation to say, yes, I'm holding spies that will bring, your, bring you down. That was very subversive, very rebellious. Hebrews 11 says she is awesome. Daniel and his friends, through the book of Daniel, they submitted to the government in every area they possibly could. And they rose very high in the government because of it. But when it ever came to resisting the government, it was always having to do with the law of a higher king, the law of a higher lord. And then, of course, the whole book of Judges, the entire book of Judges. There's 12 judges in the book of Judges. Every one of them is nothing more than a herald of rebellion against tyrants, a rebellion against all governments that seek to grab power that is not justly theirs. And every one of them is commemorated. The whole book is a celebration of rebellion, principled rebellion, because there is a Lord, because God is God. And you can't read, and this is something many would not connect. You have to see this is beautiful. You cannot read Romans 13 without reading Revelation 13. And I love this. Romans 13, you would think, and here's the deal. Paul is writing Romans in probably 57 AD, around the time of the emperor of Nero. And Nero was not a very wonderful person. And you're thinking, Paul, how could you write a letter about the government, and we know who your emperor is, we know your circumstances, why do you make it sound like everything is so great? Romans 13 was only written, I mean, Revelation 13 was only written a few more years later. Again, during the time of Nero. Again, during the time of the Roman Empire. And we are told there in Romans 13 that we find a beast who is trying to get people to do false worship. That is, the beast who represents the state in Romans 13, the government beast, is actually causing people to do church things. Merging church and state. That the state is actually causing people to do false worship. And we're told that this is the most um, um, exciting thing in all of scripture for people. In Revelation 13, 8, calculate the number of the beast. What is the number of the beast? For the number of the beast is the number of a man. The number of the beast is 666. Oh no, 666. When Paul wants to write well and try to give the government every benefit of the doubt and says, by the way, tongue-in-cheek, Romans 13, the government is here to do good, submit to them, all true, they won't harm you, they're good, they're going to do justice, He's urging them to say, yes, you want to do this. You want to do this. 
But when the scriptures critique that very same emperor, it's done, well, it's done as innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. For in Hebrew gematria, which is attributing numbers to the Hebrew letters of the alphabet, the number 666 translates into Nero Kaiser. Saying, by the way, I'm talking about that beast. The one who's killing everybody. You can't read Romans 13 without reading Revelation 13. And he is a beast. The government is a beast. We are warned in the last book of the scriptures. Do not give sinful men such power. They will take more. They will take more. They will become multiple-headed, scary, ferocious, beastly animals that just destroy things because they really have been given the power of the sword. And so that is the warning. Properly submitting to all these institutions is what we're called to do. In 1 Peter 2.13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Every human institution. And we see the beauty of all this when we step back and look at everything God has done. God has given us self-government. That is an institution. You are responsible for yourself. But that has limitations. If you abuse your freedom, if you abuse your self-government, if you can't govern yourself, other people step in and start governing you. We call that prison. Right? You only have freedom to a degree. It will be blocked off if you abuse it. And the same is true, not only for self-government, but family government. We are told in Ephesians that wives should submit to their husbands. Of course, that's not absolute. A lot of husbands, maybe every one of them are idiots. <laughs> but you want to try to be godly. And in every sense that a husband is godly and is aiming to bring along his wife in the fear and admonition of the Lord, submit to that man. He is trying. But that also has its limits. If he is abusive or unfaithful, that can be broken. You can rebel against a man like that. You don't have to be under a tyrant just because the scriptures say to submit to your husband. And the same is for church government. Hebrews 13 says that you should submit to the church leaders that have been placed over you. They're overseers for your soul. They're there to take care of you. They're there to shepherd you, to bring you along. You want to get in to the final promised land. We are in a desert wasteland and your soul needs washed regularly. You don't know how much your soul needs washed. It really does need tended to. This world is full of devils and deceptions. But if you have a church government, if you have a church leader who is not submitting to the scriptures, who is not teaching the true gospel, who is not caring for people, then say goodbye. You don't have to submit to tyrannical churches. And then we all pause for a second and think, well, that, then we stop thinking about all that as Christians. And we never apply the next step of the principle to the final institution of the state. That of course, for rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but for bad. That is meaning they should promote good to the extent that they stop promoting good, the extent that they stop providing justice, the extent that they actually make the good people afraid and the wicked people happy. There is a line in which they also lose their right to be submitted to. 
There is a line in which they lose their voice, in which they lose their prerogatives, because, and it is not anarchy, it is principled rebellion because there is a Lord who is higher. There is a Lord who is above it all, and he must be obeyed. Rulers are not to be afraid, or they should be afraid of those who are Christians in a community. Hence the reason they were persecuted in the first century. Therefore, submit to the government, he says, every opportunity we have the chance to. He says, whoever resists these authorities resists whom God has appointed. God has appointed government, and they are set there, and they are ordained. And their ordination, by that, they make ordinances. That's the principle. Ordained men make ordinances. They make laws in the land. But if they make ordinances, contrary to the one of who ordained them, you can see that now we have an opportunity to say, No, I don't think so. For you are ordained by God. And your ordinances are not coming in line with your authority. You've stepped out of that authority. You've created, let's say, leo-positivistic ordinances that are cooked up between your ears. Who are you? Who do you think you are? You have no authority, for all authority comes from God. And there's also a positive function. We're told two times here that the government, the state, is God's servant. Servant. They serve God. And if you look at the government and you say, it doesn't look like they're serving God. Well, they should be serving God. So let's think about that. So here is verse 4. He is God's servant for your good. The word there is deacon. He is God's deacon for your good. We have deacons in this church. They serve other people. God has deacons outside there. They hold swords as well, but they're called deacons. And they are to do the things that God wants them to do. That's the positive. They do things for good. They serve. They build roads. They do whatever. They help people for the good. But there's a negative side in which servant is also used. The negative function, it says this. He is a servant. He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. For he does not bear the sword. He does not bear the sword in vain. That's another word used for servant. It is a word where which we get the word liturgy. Leitergos. Leitergos is the word there for service. It's where we literally get the word leitergos, liturgy. There is a worshipful aspect to what the government should be doing. When, when, a, when the kennel dog catcher goes to work on the government's paycheck, he should be whistling to the Lord. When the President of the United States makes a good law, he should fall on his face and worship Jesus. Now, that doesn't always happen. And there's only one way to make that happen. Therefore, we're told, pray for your public officials. Pray that God would give us godly leaders. It's actually that simple. And if God gives us leaders that are not godly, it is always and every time in Scripture a judgment. It is every time in that God is giving us the leaders that we actually deserve. And how much more so now? When, when Babylon came and subjugated Israel by force, it was because God was giving them the tyrannical leadership that their sin deserved. Their lawlessness produced them having a lawless government. How much more for us when we live in a rep, rep, uh, repub, rep, 
Oh my gosh. A democracy that is also a republic. <laughs> we have representatives. It's federal. It's, it's republic-like. But we vote for them. It's democratic too. How much more ironic is it that God would say, oh, you can have them. And you can vote for them. And you know what? You can train up your whole next generation of kids in the legal positivistic education in which they actually believe, they osmose the lie of this thing called secularism. That Christian children grow up thinking there is this thing called religion over here and Jesus and God and he's over here and he's Lord. And then there's just this thing called government. We just kind of like, literally it's a cafeteria food fight and we just do whatever we want. You train that, you train that from all the times, and all of a sudden you, do, you have Christians voting for the most ungodly situations because they've created a dialectic in their mind in which they think, I can worship Jesus, and then we can vote this way. It's like, that is exactly what we deserve. God has given it to us. He has given us the government we deserve. So we pray contrary to that, to love, to pray that God would give us good leaders. And so to close, it is this. The sword is for coercion. The state has the ability to force people to do things. So therefore, the state should have as limited authority as possible, because that already is a lot of power. The church has greater power. And the beauty of our gospel, the beauty of our Christ, the beauty of it all, is it never looks that way. It did not look like David was powerful when he was a small child and he took down Goliath. It did not look like the firstborn child in every generation was supposed to be picked. And it was always the youngest. It was always the weakest. It was always the runt. It was always the one on the edges. We missed our Messiah because we thought he would come with great power. And he did. He came with great power. But he didn't look like it. So the government has been given the sword of steel. There is greater power in the church. For... We cannot compel faith. And as Christians, we would never wish to do that. You cannot force people to believe. You can't force them to say, trust in Jesus or I'll kill you. Oh, okay, I'll trust in Jesus because I really believe it now. Like, that's not how faith works. But we have been given a sword that creates faith. For the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And we're told in Hebrews 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. This sword can compel people to believe. And it's spoken through love, not coercion. So thank you very much, anyone that reminds Christians that there's a separation between church and state. Yes, that's a gift we gave you. We came up with it. It's in the scriptures. And we want it that way. Because we want to see people love Jesus. And we don't want to force and compel them to do that. And by the way, thank you very much. I would much rather have this more powerful sword of the Spirit. Spoken to the gospel. Given out by lives full of love and sacrifice. That is what changes the world. That is first off how Jesus even saved us. He submitted to the iron sword. But he spoke a gospel that has never died. And so here... We are promised this, that we should love our government. We should love them. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Taxes to whom tax is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. 
Give taxes with joy. Give them with joy. Think, think about that concept. You are paying for a real service. You drive on those roads. They keep peace in the streets. Give them your money and do it with a smile. God loves a cheerful giver. We say that in church all the time. Remember to pay our taxes with joy. But then also remember, revenue, any gains we make, respect. Even if our government proves itself to not deserve much respect, we should be charitable to always want to give it, want to smile, want to give them honor. When they do foolish things, say, we love you. This is great. Local magistrates praying for them all the time because the reality is we should be loving. We should be loving. Jesus, our Savior, submitted himself to corrupt human governments to save us from our corruption. The Lord submitted himself to an unjust sword to save us from our injustices. And there will be a day, we are promised in Isaiah 2, that he will take all those swords. He will take every one of them He'll lean them up against the ground. He'll lean his hip into the side and he'll bend that sword. He'll bend it into a crescent. He'll take every sword and turn it into a plowshare. He'll take every spear and make it a pruning hook. Because of his great gospel of love that transforms this world and finally does away with every sin, He will bend our sword someday. He will dismantle every civil government because there will be no need to correct crime. There will be no more sin. For the sword of the Spirit will have conquered the world. In Revelation 19, that sword comes out of his mouth. And he speaks it over all the nations. And they will submit. He will decide disputes between every nation. And he will take their swords and make them plowshares. Let us pray. Father... Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, for this promise that we understand that you will take all of this, all of these swords that we do harm with by one another, the swords even that we need to keep criminals and justice at bay. Lord, there will be a day in which we will need them never again. There will be a day in which you will decide every dispute We'll take our swords and make them nothing more than gardening tools. Lord, we pray for you to do that in and among us, Lord, as we play a part in this great story. And that the love that we have in fulfilling all the law, that we would owe no one nothing except continual love to come out of this church and into this community. In Jesus' name, amen.